Well, good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. We are continuing our series in the Ten Commandments today. In fact, we are wrapping up this series. Uh, we're on the Tenth Commandment. And then over the next two weeks, Dave will be doing a, a very short mini-series over the, over the gift of self-forgetfulness, uh, which very much ties in to, to our last commandment that we have today. Before we begin, I do want to pray. I want to pray for our time together. I want to pray uh, that, that the Spirit of God would do His work in us. But I also uh, want to take some time at the beginning of our service to pray uh, for a sister church in Temple. Uh, many of you know Temple Bible Church. If you've been around here long enough, you remember uh, that that's the church that planted us here in Colleen. Uh, over the past, goodness, it might be over a year now, uh, their pastor who's been with them for over 30 years, Gary DeSalvo, uh, he had a diagnosis of ocular cancer. Um, if you're following that on Facebook, you, you know that the cancer has metastasized, it's spread, and so now he's seeking alternative treatments. So we just want to make we sure we take a little bit of time to, to pray for him and, and pray for that sister church, and then also pray for our, our time together. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our God in heaven, you, you are in control of all things, and nothing surprises you. So whether it is a celebration or a struggle and a sorrow we are facing, we know, Lord, that you are there and you are present in the midst of what is happening So with that knowledge, Lord, we approach you asking for your grace and your mercy on our sister church, Temple Bible Church. We pray, Lord, for Gary and his family as they are facing this this horrible prognosis. We pray for the tests that he's getting right now to try to get some, some alternative treatments. Father, we pray that your will be done. We pray, Lord, if it be your will, that, that he does get accepted for this alternative treatment and that it has a, a good effect. Lord, we, we, know, we know that there's no fear in death, knowing that what awaits us is you. But Lord, we still acknowledge that death is the enemy. So Father, we pray for life. Father, we also pray for the other elders and staff there at Temple Bible Church that you give them wisdom on how to, to love the people uh, during these difficult days. And Father, we also pray right now for the time that we're about to go into as we open up your word, which shows us your righteousness and shows us your grace and how you would have us live. May we be open to what your spirit has to say to us this morning. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are, have your Bibles, we'll be on Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the pews or in the benches that you're sitting on underneath them. And if you're using those Bibles, we'll be on page 61. Get there quick because it's a short verse. <laughs> Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is a word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I had a professor in college. He was my absolute favorite professor. Our school was small enough 
uh, you could actually get to know your professors. So I would go to the church where he pastored, and we would play 42 together. Uh, and he was my favorite professor because he had the driest sense of humor. Uh, and so he would crack a joke without a smile and just keep on going. And every time it just, it just, it just got me. I, I loved his humor. Uh, and for some reason, this, past, this professor always spoke with a, a styrofoam cup of coffee in his hand. I, I don't know if I ever saw him drink the coffee, but it was there. And the coffee kind of kept a, a constant level, but he, he'd have it there while he taught. And I remember one particular day he was speaking about the Ten Commandments. And one of the things that he said is that you never break just one commandment. There, there's ten of them, but if you break one commandment, you've always broken at least two. And what he was referring to was this tenth commandment, this commandment that Moses gave to the nation of Israel that God has given to all of humanity that states, thou shalt not covet. Don't covet. So what we want to do this morning is we really want to do three things. First of all, we want to define what it means to covet. Then what we want to do is we want to break that apart. We want to break that definition apart and go a little bit deeper into the different halves of that definition. And we also want to apply those texts to our lives. So let's, let's begin by asking what it means to not covet. What is coveting? What we find is that coveting is a desire, but it's also a doubt. That's the two different sides of the coin of coveting. You are doubting the fact that God is good. You're doubting the fact that God loves you, that he is gracious. And at the same time, the other side of the coin is coveting is a desire. We see the desire side more in this passage because because it's saying you will desire your neighbor's house, his wife, his male servant, his female servant, his his ox, his donkey, or anything else. So that's what coveting is. Coveting is doubting the goodness of God. And coveting is a misplaced desire. We see this as true throughout all the scriptures. And so let's just trace it just a little bit. The first place we see this at the very beginning is with Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve, we believe, were the first humans on earth. When God created humanity, he began with Adam and Eve. He placed them in a perfect world in the garden that he himself planted said, multiply, fill the earth, work the garden. Work was a joy. What a beautiful place. And probably the most beautiful aspect of the garden is the fact that Adam and Eve got to dwell with God. He was their God. They were his people, and they were in relationship with one another. And God gave Adam and Eve a commandment. He said, Adam and Eve, you can enjoy any tree in this garden. You can enjoy any tree in the garden, but there's this one tree, this one tree called the knowledge tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I don't want you to take of it. That one's out of bounds. So Adam and Eve live in the garden. They live in fellowship with God. And I don't know how long they were in fellowship with God until one day the serpent, Satan, comes and begins to whisper doubts in Eve's ear. Did God really say not to eat of the tree? He started casting doubts in her mind, saying, you know what? I think God is trying to keep you from something. He knows that when you eat of the tree, you will become like God. 
So what was the seed that was sowed into Adam and Eve's heart was a seed of doubt of God's goodness, that God, their creator and sustainer, was actually keeping something good from them. And the desire they had was the desire to be like God. We can be like God ourselves without God. It was the first rebellion of humanity against God. But what was it? It was coveting. It was doubting the goodness of God and at the same time desiring to be God. Coveting is is a doubt and it is a desire. We see this thousands of years later in Exodus, right where we are today, where Israel were enslaved by Pharaoh for 400 years. And what does God do? God hears their cries in slavery and he sends a deliverer. He sends Moses and through Moses, God works all sorts of miracles and he frees them. He turns the Nile to blood. He sends gnats. He sends, he sends flies. He sends locusts. Hail falls from the sky. Animals die. And eventually, the eldest son of the, of the Egyptian families dies. And what happens? Through God's mighty work, because of his love for his people, Israel is delivered out of slavery. And God continues to show himself and to show his faithfulness while in the desert. But what do we see? we see that Israel began to covet. What is coveting? It's doubt and desire. They begin to doubt God's goodness, that while they're going across that desert, that wilderness, they begin to think, maybe God brought us out here to kill us. Maybe God's really not for us, but maybe he's against us. They're doubting God, and they're starting to desire things. Well, maybe Maybe God brought us out here to die because there is no food. You know what God does? He does save. That's exactly right. He said, you're hungry? I'm going to provide for you. And manna falls from heaven. And they wake up and all they have to do is go out and pick up the food. Did that satisfy the desire? No. Didn't satisfy the desire because after they received the manna, they said, Oh, if we just had meat to eat. And they began to not only doubt God's goodness, but they began to desire to be enslaved again. They said, Remember back on the banks of the Nile where we could just go out and get all the fish we wanted? It was free, it was there for the taking. They forgot the slavery side, I guess, but, but the food was free, right? What happened in their hearts is that they began to covet. They were doubting the goodness of God, and they were desiring things that are not good. They had misplaced desires. C.S. Lewis says that oftentimes uh, we, we modern people begin to fall into what we call chronological slavery. Or slavery, chronological snobbery. Uh, chronological snobbery is, is this. It's basically thinking that we are better than ancient peoples, that that we look at Adam and Eve and we think, what fools? You were in relationship with God. You were in a perfect world with no death, no disease. And we begin to look down on them. We, or we'll look at the people of Israel and say, how could you doubt God's goodness? Look at what he did for you. And we begin to look at people in the past, judging them and thinking that we are better and wiser than they are. But Scripture has a different idea that says that the human heart regardless of what century you live in, is corrupt. James says this in James chapter 4, 
verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you do not obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, James says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What James is saying of people thousands of years later is that we are still a covetous people. That what causes fights and what causes quarrels among us is oftentimes our covetousness. The fact that we doubt God's goodness and that we desire and are putting our hope and satisfaction in the wrong things. So what we want to do with with the rest of our morning is, is we want to take that definition of coveting. That coveting is doubting the goodness of God. That coveting is, is desiring and having misplaced desires. And we want to use the scripture as, as a mirror into our own souls to see if, if we are a covetous people and what scripture says about that. So, so first of all, doubt. Doubt is a questioning of God's goodness. Do you doubt the goodness of God? Now, if you're like me and you were raised in church, we have what we call Sunday school answers. Sunday school answers are the answers that we just are know the right answers, right? The answer is always Jesus. And so if we were to have the Sunday school answer to this question, do we doubt the goodness of God? We'd say, of course not. God is good all the time, all the time. God is, you got it. You, you, you got it. So we know the truth in our heart that God is good. But oftentimes what we find in our lives is what we know to be true in our minds. We do not know to be true in our actions. That we live contrary to what we know is true. And what we need to do is realize the contradiction between our mind and our heart and our actions. A diagnostic question we can ask to find out if we truly believe God is good is we can ask ourselves this question. Is our life marked more by gratitude or is our life marked more by complaint? That's what we see in the nation of Israel. When you read the story of Israel going through the wilderness, they were always a grumbling people. They were always a people who was, who was mumbling against God and against Moses and against their, against their situation. They're unhappy. I think sometimes this is the case because we, we think we deserve better. You, you ever feel that way? You're at the work, right? punching the clock day after day, and then someone comes in behind you, younger, less experienced, but the right connections, and they just jump right ahead of you. And you think, I deserved that promotion. I deserved that raise. I deserved better. Or it might look something like this. You come to church, and you are faithful in your attendance. You give to the church, you support the church, you're there, you're there every time the doors open, and then tragedy strikes your house. Maybe it's an illness, maybe it's a lost job, 
Maybe it's marital strife. And what do we say? We say, God, I was faithful. I did what I was supposed to do. What we find here is this diagnostic question is showing that we are doubting the goodness of God. And what we are actually portraying in our life is not the gospel, is not the truth of God's word, but is a, is a sort and a type of prosperity gospel. We're basically saying, God, I'm doing my part, you do your part. And we are earning God's favor in our lives. I think we can apply this in a couple different ways. One, we need to be a people marked brought by gratitude. A people whose lives are marked by thanksgiving. And secondly, I think we need to look at our life through new eyes. As Christians, we believe that God is a sovereign God. That this world, he is working out his plan in the midst, and and he has what he calls providence, the providence of God. Have you ever thought about this? That your position at work, that your station in life, that the trial you are facing right now, that God's goodness is expressed to you by you living through that. We are doubting God's goodness whenever we say life is not the way it's supposed to be right now, that if God was good, he would fix all this for me right now. Trust God's goodness. Even if you're going through a trial, even if you're going through a struggle, trust that he is good through it. Others of us answer the question completely different, right? Some of us hear the question, do you doubt God's goodness? And you're like, well, no, God is good. We know that. I think there's other of us in here today, and we hear that question, do I doubt God's goodness? And we might not even want to vocalize the answer because our answer might be something along the lines of this. I don't just doubt God's goodness. I doubt his existence. And if God did exist, I don't think he could be good. Because when I look at the world, all I see is brokenness. All I see are people always at each other. All I see are people yelling and angry everywhere I go. And we had this thought that if God were truly good, the world wouldn't be broken in this way. And so we remove the notion of a good God. Can I just say this to you? Removing the notion of a good God does not solve the problem of pain and suffering in the world. You can remove the notion of a good God and the world is going to be just as broken as it was before. In fact, I think it might make it even more hopeless. If you have an evolutionary worldview that there is no God, we got here through chance, and everything is just a result of cause and effect. You know what humans are? We're, we're essentially like the ball in a pinball machine. Uh, you can tell the young folks what that, what that is. Uh, a pinball machine. You, know, you, got, you got the ball, it drops down, you hit the buttons on the side, and you got those little, uh, those little switches that, that hit the ball up, you know? And, and if we are just the result of chance, and all of life is just, just, just the result of cause and effect, 
we are at the mercy of, of the pinball machine. And when we pass those little switches and the game is over and our last, lap, and our last breath is gone, we just cease to exist. Truly believing that God doesn't exist, we are just the result of cause and effect, and when I die, I cease to exist, doesn't solve the problem of pain and suffering in the world. But what I think it does do is it leads us to a type of nihilism of just throwing up our hands and saying, what does it all matter in the end anyways? This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Christians, we believe that, yes, the world is a broken place that has been cursed for centuries, that there is sadness and there is sorrow in it, But what we believe is that this is not a result of God's doing, but as a result of sin. And this is why we think that God is good. That when God saw the brokenness of humanity, he did not say, well, you brought it on yourselves. He didn't say, you get what you deserve. He didn't say, well, that's just a natural consequence of your sin. What did he do? Scripture tells us that this good God put on flesh, and dwelt among us. That's why we think that God is good. Because he became one of us. He experienced that brokenness. He experienced that pain. He experienced that loss. And not only that, but he went one more. He experienced that something that that the rest of us will never experience. He died when he did not deserve it. Because of our sin, we deserve death. We deserve hell. But Christ received it when he did not deserve it. The good news of the gospel is that he did not stay dead, but rose again. I think this leads us to our application. If you doubt the goodness of God and you doubt the existence of God, I encourage you, to learn more about our God. Before you make your final decision, you cast your final ballot on God, it's Easter time. Why don't you open up the Bible and read about God for yourself? Maybe start in the Gospel of Mark, maybe the Gospel of John, and read about Jesus' life, read about his ministry, read about his death, read about the hope that we have. Because the only other alternative is that you're learning about God from like movies and country music. not an accurate depiction of the God that we love. All right? So I I just invite you to do that. And if you're like, man, I want to take you up on it, I'll read it with you. (laughs) You We'll do it together. Look look at someone who brought you to church or a friend that you see and read the gospel with them so they can help answer your questions. But find out who God is for himself and find out why we think that our God is so good. We think he is so good that we also think that he is the only hope for humanity. We think he is so good that he is the only hope for contentment and for peace and satisfaction in our life. And that leads us to the second half of the definition of coveting. That coveting is not only a doubt in God's goodness, but coveting is also a missed 
misplaced hope. It's a misplaced hope. How would you answer this question? Uh, How would you fill in the blank? If I just had blank, then I would be happy. If I just had this one thing, I would be content and satisfied. As we look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, we found out how the ancient Israelites would answer it. And once again, I think we find that that we're not all that different than they are. If I just had my neighbor's house, I would be happy. If I just had maybe one more bedroom, maybe 400 square, f- more, more square feet, man, I, I, I'd be content. I'd be satisfied. Or maybe if I just didn't have to move around so much, then, then I could be happy. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet their wife. If I just had a different wife, I would be happy. If I just had a different husband, I'd be happy. If, if, if my spouse would just stop doing these things, our marriage would be fixed. Have you ever had these thoughts? What Scripture tells us is that when we have these thoughts, what they are, they are misplaced hopes. They are misplaced desires. Because what is true of misplaced desires is whenever we receive that thing that we've been longing for, we have this incredible letdown because it did not bring the satisfaction we thought it would bring. I think we see this in in David's children. King David in the Old Testament had many children from from many different wives. Um, There's a story. It's quite sad story about David's son, Amnon, and his half-sister, Tamar. It says in Scripture in 2 Samuel 13 that Amnon loved his half-sister in a very non-brotherly way. So much so, it says that Amnon's life was tormented by the fact that Tamar was off-limits said he was so longing for her that he actually fell ill. And a counselor came to Amnon and said, why are you so sad? You're a son of the king. Why don't you act sick and ask for her to take care of you? So that's what he did. And in the process of that happening, Amnon violated his half-sister in the most unbelievable way. It's what he'd been longing for. It's why he said, if I just had this, I would be happy and content. This is what 2 Samuel 13 says after that act. It says that he, he took her and he cast her out, locked the door behind her with her pleading. It says, Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he loved her. What Scripture is saying is that when we have a misplaced desire, our heart is longing for it. But sometimes we get the curse of getting what we were longing for. And we find out it doesn't satisfy us in the way that we thought it would. It doesn't satisfy us because we are still going to be us. The only thing that can satisfy us in an all-satisfying way 
is Jesus Christ. Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11 through 13. He says, I have learned that in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. And in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And what's the secret? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Whenever your hope and whenever your desire becomes Jesus Christ, it becomes and can be an all-consuming thing so that you look at your life differently. Your work no longer becomes just a place where you can check in and check out and get your paycheck to pay your bills and hopefully retire one day. But your job becomes a mission field where you're an ambassador for the king. Your life with your children no longer becomes and feels like an endless trap, but you realize that that your children are a gift from God. And it's your job to disciple them so that they too will put their faith and hope in the only satisfying Jesus Christ. I challenge you, Grace Bible Church, to believe in God's goodness and, and to start pursuing Christ as the only thing that will bring you hope in this life. We do that by trusting in Him, by believing in Him, by repenting of our sins and continually turning away from them, and by pursuing a life of righteousness. Not only to earn God's favor, we can't do that. We can't earn God's favor, but we pursue a life of righteousness because Christ is satisfying to us. I'd like to end with this thought. Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 through 21 says this. Now when all the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid. They trembled and they stood far off and they said, Moses, speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off. While, my, my, while Moses drew near in the thick darkness where God was. I think the Israelites were afraid because they just received these two tablets with these ten laws that revealed the righteousness of God, and they knew they were guilty. They knew that they could not live up to the perfect righteous standard that God put forth to them, so they were afraid, and they stood far off. When we approach the Ten Commandments, we can approach it in two ways. We can approach it the way that the Israelites approached it, realizing that this is a standard that we can never live up to, and and we can stand far off. Or we can put our trust in Christ, who kept the commandments for us perfectly, and that his account, his perfect account, is then placed upon us. So when we look at the Ten Commandments, we no longer look at it as an imperfect list that we can never live up to, but we look at it as an opportunity to thank God for His goodness, to pursue God's righteousness. That's what it says in Hebrews chapter 4. Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet Jesus is without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Let us pursue these commandments because Christ has already accomplished them. And he is the reason we can approach God in confidence and not stand far off like the Israelites. Let's stand and pray. Father, we, we want you as our God. Though sin causes rebellion and distance, we know Jesus has bridged that gap and we can know you. You can be our God and we can be your people. And for that, we are eternally grateful. Be with us, O Lord, as, as we fight to believe and live out the fact that you are good. And be with us, O Lord, as we pursue Jesus as the ultimate good in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.